Welcome to episode 336 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus, joined by Carlos Welch. Carlos, are you still in San Diego? Yes, still in San Diego. Uh, do you want to talk about what you're doing there? Um, yeah. So um, in San Diego, staying at my ex's place because she recently had spinal fusion surgery and so I came over to help her out while she's recovering uh, been here since June and um, you know it was pretty uh, rough going at first but uh, she's probably back up to about you know 80% right now so you know so this is interesting for people who are familiar with your backstory I mean I'm- had bits and pieces of it at various points in, in the show, but this, this is the woman that you you owned a house with, you know, uh, at the time that you decided you wanted to be uh, friendless, jobless, and alone. Is that right? Yes, I owned a house and she lived Sorry. with. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> the woman you were living with in the house that you owned. No, the woman that was living with me. <laughs> <laughs> but the roles have been reversed temporarily. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's um, a funny turn of events that was well, 10 years later you're uh, finding yourself living. I mean, I think for a lot of people that would be like sort of a nightmare scenario to be uh, quarantined with your ex during a pandemic, but I guess you're making it work. Yeah, you know, um, I was actually talking to a friend about this recently, and I guess my kind of connotation of the word X is different from most people's. Like, um, it's not like we had a um, like a big blowout breakup <laughs> back in the day, like we hated each other. It's not that sort of thing. It's just that we both came to the realization that. Um, at the time, we both came to the realization that we didn't need to be together. I'm still, you know, in that space. She's kind of like wanting to get back together, but um, it's not happening. And we are happier together. Yeah, <laughs> we, get <I> a, <laughs> we, we, we get along better when we're not together, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's... um. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed by people who are, uh, I mean, I've never really even been in the, the situation to succeed or fail at this, but, you know, people who are able to maintain good relationships, you know, to sort of end a romantic relationship and still have a sort of, it seems to me like a, a difficult thing to do. I know a lot of people do not succeed at it. Yeah. Now that I think about it, like exes before her, I don't think I've had a, um, I don't think I have a bad um relationship seems like a seems, doesn't seem like the right word for this context right. but yeah i don't have a bad relationship with my previous exes so yeah i don't know um i don't know i guess i'm, I'm pretty laid back like you know um yeah there, there's never been you know a bad split 
I found it interesting also because at least in, in my imagining, I don't know if this is, is true or not, but you know, I know this is around the time that you were starting to take poker more seriously as well, that like she may have already had a kind of resentful relationship <laughs> towards your poker playing. And now you're like, once again, sort of, uh, I mean, not abandoning her, but you know, there, I'm, I'm sure there are times when she would like to do things with you and you're like, nope, I'm playing poker. <laughs> you know, that she's like still, uh, still battling with that after all these years. Yeah, poker was here before her, so she'll always <laughs> play second fiddle <laughs> to poker. I, I think I I think I met her maybe a couple of months after I started playing poker. Um, so that's always been the refrain whenever she would text me, you know, what are you doing? It's just a two word answer every time. Playing <laughs> poker, and it's been like that for more than a decade. So yeah, she she's getting more used to it but she's still like you know you're right she's still a little bit annoyed by it but I, I do i do make a little bit of time to do things that i otherwise wouldn't want to do like watch movies or tv and stuff mm-hmm. so i'm i'm actually playing poker a lot less these days um because i'm coaching during the day and then when she comes back from work at night you know i'll go and um watch tv or something with her for a couple of hours so you know in a, in a way she kind of got a wish like if i was not in her apartment i would definitely like not um take i wouldn't take a night off from poker to talk on the phone to her but <laughs> right. but since i'm in her apartment i feel obligated to at least watch a movie with her yeah <laughs> I, mean, I guess maybe you're not the one choosing the movies, but I'm curious. This, I don't know that we've ever really talked about much other than The Wire. What are your tastes in like TV or movies? I'm choosing the movies. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's the one um, caveat to this whole thing. If I I'm more to... curious. What are you choosing? Okay, so yesterday we watched. Well, it's not always movies. A lot of times it's TV shows, which are basically movies nowadays. Right. They're like um, longer than movies now. <laughs> right. Right. So yesterday we watched this new thing, um, Good Lord Bird, which is about um, John Brown. Oh, interesting. So that was something I picked. Um, this, uh, when I first got here, we spent a lot of time watching this show called Insecure, uh, which is another one that I picked it because I liked it and I knew it was something she would like as well. But, you know, a lot of times I in the beginning, when I first got here, I basically compromised a little bit more. She's into um, black and white movies like. um, What's these? I'm trying to remember some of these names like Betty Davis and like. Like if you know, like Turner Classic movies. Yeah, I, I struggle to get into that kind of stuff. Even when I know it's a good, like supposedly a good movie or whatever, just the the pace of those movies is so different from what comes out now. It's hard for me to really get into them. Yeah, so I'll occasionally compromise and watch one of those with her, at least in the beginning. But then, you know, as I as my patience <laughs> grew, uh, wore more and more thin over the uh, months. It started turning into like UFC fights and shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that or nothing. So she will, she'll basically get me to come in there and watch something with her, and then it'll be something that I'm more interested in than she is, and then she'll fall asleep. 
and then I'll try to sneak out and then she'll yell <laughs> to come back. <laughs> and how's the poker going for you? Poker's going great. Um, probably this is not probably this is definitely the best year I've had in wow. poker uh, as far as playing and coaching. So um, life is good on the poker front, man. Yeah, I mean, I, we've we've kind of made passing reference to this on the show before, but you know, even as a, a coach myself, you know, I'm really impressed with your work ethic as a coach, and it's part. I mean, so we can, <laughs> if people don't know already, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show now is to talk about this thing that that we have coming out. The uh, well, originally we were going to call it Coaching Andrew. It's kind of a play off of the uh, Coaching Carlos series that we we put out a while ago. Um, but the truth is, I've never had like a, a formal paid coach before, and it's not that I didn't think one would be useful. It's just that knowing how much work I put into my own coaching, I always kind of doubted that. Um, I, I just, you know, I didn't trust it, especially at the prices of you know, people that I would have needed to hire who would have been like better than I was. Um, I didn't really trust that I was like going to get the same level of input from them. I, I got the impression that a lot of people are a lot more sort of peremptory in the way they do. It's just like, oh, just bring me some hands and we'll talk about them or whatever. Um, and so, I mean, you're, you're the first person that I ever considered uh, paying for, for coaching. We ended up working out to do this product instead. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very impressed with how much effort you put into uh, you know making sure that you're really doing something of value for your students. Thank you. That there's more to come. That there's some things I got for you that I haven't really given you yet because uh, oh. we've been busy. But <laughs> yeah, that that I, I do a lot of off the clock work for my students. So yeah, um, yeah, I appreciate that uh, compliment. So this um. This product, uh, which we're now calling Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments, I mean, this, this was what I came to you for, was, you know, I've been playing more small stakes tournaments since I've been quarantining. And uh, now, I mean, the, the casinos have reopened in Maryland. I don't really have a sense of, like, I mean, I don't have any intention of, of going there myself um, anytime soon, I think. But uh, I, I don't even really have a sense of, like, what they're running or if they're having tournaments. I can't imagine there's anything too big happening right now tournament wise um so i've been playing more online and the uh, the online offerings i'm not able to get unfortunately onto uh, ignition from maryland which is a shame because i know you're always telling me <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what i'm missing out on but uh so i've been playing a lot of you know like mid stakes uh small stakes kind of stuff on america's card room and i suspected that you know, my personal study of poker has been so game theory driven and i mean as you know when i'm thinking about game theory or studying your game theory or whatever it's always from an exploitative point of view like my objective is always understand what the equilibrium would look like so that you can make better decisions about how to deviate from it and exploit your opponents but even so you know i i guess I don't know that I have the best calibration for exactly how far the deviation should go. Like, even if I know, okay, these people are you know, maybe a little too nitty with their preflop opening, and you can exploit that by folding a little too much. Like, I don't always know what the boundary, like, what is a little too much, or you know, like how nitty should my folds to you know various spots be, or how much, how aggressively should I be trying to value bet, how blatant should I be with my sizing, like exactly how much can I get away with? Um, so that was the main thing that I wanted to to get from you was sort of to review a tournament, and this is what we ended up doing we recorded it and it's available for people 
to uh, purchase at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, it's about six hours of our of our working together over a few different sessions, and I'm um, just you know running through a fifty dollar tournament that I played and getting your thoughts on you know things that I should have done or at least you know in a, in an even softer game than the one that I was in you know things that you would have done. So it's essentially like what are the things that you're doing to really take maximum advantage of you know, weaker players that you encounter in in small stakes tournaments you know going beyond the like standard stuff the above the rim sorts of things that you can do against really weak opponents right right and i think i think we um found some some gems in there yeah do you want to give like a little overview of um you know just like what are some of the you think like the, the video, of course, will get into the, the details, but you know, what do you think are some of the most important exploits when you're playing in, um, in, in those kinds of tournaments? The first thing I would say is the, the main difference that you need to apply in these games as opposed to a GTO environment is to not like you don't want to have this this. Um, desire for balance and having making sure you can have bluffs and value in the same spots so a lot of these players are pretty extreme in the uh, mistakes that they make so if you know that you're up against someone that's a habitual calling station you don't want to be balanced when you're betting versus them just bet your value hands in addition to that Bet your value hands bigger than you would if you were choosing a balance size against a more uh, GTO opponent. So there's so many spots where, you know, the hand can start 200 big blinds deep and I might end up three betting and just like getting in stacks with, you know, one pair against a guy who can't fold second pair where that sort of thing just doesn't happen very often and um, um, tougher environments. Um, the other side of that coin is when they're betting, you don't want to be bluff catching even when you have like the best possible bluff catchers against passive opponents because it's not that they never bluff, it's that they don't bluff often enough to justify you paying off their value bets. And so if this if it's a situation where you need them to be bluffing like a quarter of the time, and in reality you think they're only bluffing like 10% of the time, then you should just always fold. So, um, you know, getting more out of your value bets, bluff catching less often, and the most important thing I'll say is knowing who you're up against. That, that Passive read I just gave is going to fit, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the unknown players, depending on which site you're playing on and with which um, buy in level. But there's going to be a percentage of maniacs in there or properly aggressive opponents or just, you know, good opponents. There, There's a few. There's not a ton, but there's a few in the soft small states tournaments um so as quickly as you can identify which one you're up against and then just basically play completely face up in a way that specifically exploits the mistake that they um, are likely to make 
Yeah, that was one of the most eye-opening things for me. One of the first things that we zeroed in on when we were working together was, and it's not that I wasn't taking notes on people, but um, the extent to which you were doing it, you know, how my, like, every single hand, even ones that I wasn't involved in, you're like, wait, no, that one went to showdown. Go back, look at this. Here's, you know, just uh, the, the amount. Like, I think of, of all the things that you're saying, a lot of it's not going to be... Um, eye-opening to people you know that oh yeah value bet more often against fish like the 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 devil is in the details like i think that's where a a lot of that is like that i mean that's what i was looking for anyway and and what i think you delivered on was you know the the extent to which you can you can get away with it which i was underappreciating and i imagine a lot of people uh underappreciate i'll tell you what there's two there's two things that led me to play this way and one of them um, our conversation showed that you kind of felt the same way. The first one was there's times where I assume that an unknown player is going to be passive because that's going to be right 70, 80% of the time. But if I don't go into the detail of like deciding whether he fits that default um, or determining whether he fits that default profile or not, there's times where I've like made some ridiculous hero fall to a player. And then like five hands later, I find out the guy is a maniac. And then I go back through the hand history and see that, damn it. If I had just been paying attention, like he showed earlier that he was a maniac, but because I was like watching TV and not really paying attention between hands, I missed that clue. And I played him as if he was the average opponent on the site. And I ended up folding a hand where, I, you know, I probably just have like 90% equity versus a guy. Um, so that's painful. So when that happened, you know, a number of times, that really taught me to pay attention. And the other thing is the one that you uh, mentioned um, during our um, coaching session is all the times where it was the opposite case, where you thought that a guy was bluffing and you didn't fold, not even bluffing, but like (laughs) betting an appropriate mix of value bets and bluffs, and you didn't fold a hand that you would never fold to a GTO opponent. And in reality, this this particular player just never has the bluff portion of that and so you, I got burned making hero folds against people I didn't, I shouldn't. And you got burned not making hero folds <laughs> against people you should. And so when that, like the pain of both of those is so extreme that it should, you know, encourage you to um, pay more attention at the table. Yeah, and I think it's good to point out here, you are going to end up making some mistakes when you are basing off of limited information. I mean, if it's just like you see one hand go to showdown and you're like, oh, wow, that guy played that in a really passive way. I'm going to mark him as passive. And then, you know, later, like especially if you're playing on ignition or something, you can actually see the cards face up. So the next day you look at the, the tournament and you see that like you did actually fold to one of those bluffs. And it's important to recognize, you know, just like you're playing against a range when, you know, it's like if you bluff and it doesn't work, doesn't mean you made a mistake. The same thing, you know, if, if you fold and it turns out that your opponent actually, you know, later you find out he's actually a psychopath and you just had the wrong read on him or something. You know, this is all, 
you're you're making probabilistic reads based on limited information and you're always open to revising those reads but the point is if you see someone play one hand really passively it becomes much more likely that he's a very passive player and then you know you start playing against him as though that were true and most of the time it will be you know like more often assuming that you're doing a good job making the reads more often than not that player will end up being very passive and you'll be right to do those exploitative things occasionally you know they'll end up not fitting that profile and you'll need to revise your read and you want to be open to that but like the fact that you know this just like everything else in poker this isn't about certainty (laughs) so i think you know probably myself included, but I know a lot of people are reluctant to do anything too dramatic based off of limited information, um, which I think is a mistake. You know, I think you just accept that, you know, it's not about being sure, but if, you know, I want to make what I can of the information that I have. And you know what? We're playing an information game and giving, given how limited this information is, it seems like people would be hungry for every bit of it that's out there. But a lot of us play a limited information game and then we don't even look at, you know, the information <laughs> that's out there. And so we're we're actually more limited than we need to be. And too many people kind of update those reads in the way that you say after they play a hand against a guy incorrectly. <laughs> Whereas if you just watched the previous three orbits, you could have gotten that information. And then when it was time to play against this guy, you would make a better decision. But yeah, it's a limited information game. So, you know, take every piece of it you can get. You know, I remember flipping through, I believe it was online poker for dummies in a bookstore like 15 years ago. And it was already at the point where I was not going to buy it for my own purposes, but I was like curious what was in it. Right. And I, I specifically remember there was a section on reads and the the authors, I've, I don't remember who wrote this and I'm sure it was not anyone like famous. <laughs> we would know their name now as a poker player. Um, but their, their point on reads was like, you, you know, you never know what someone's doing. Also like if you know timing tales aren't a thing online, because for all, you know, someone might just be like slow to respond because their wife just asked them a question or whatever, which I think is just such the wrong way to think about it. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's an outside chance that's what's happening. It's far more likely that they're slow to respond because they were legitimately thinking about what they wanted to do. Um, Yeah. I just, that, that for whatever reason that's always stuck. I mean I guess I just like recognized it as wrong immediately at the time and it's just always sort of like tilted me that that was there <laughs> yeah anything just because the information isn't perfect doesn't mean it isn't useful and we're working on pretty thin margins anyway so if you can improve your decision making by even 5% because you paid attention and you got a read that wasn't, you know, 100% accurate, but it was better than nothing. A lot of times, like that, that's worth it, you know. So none, none of this is like foolproof. Uh, so we've got a couple of questions here from people who wrote into the show. And at least one of these deals with the topic of making a hero fold. Uh, So this hand comes from Sean. And I guess I've already told you it's a hero fold. So I can tell you that the subject line of the email was, could I have gotten away from this? Which is, yeah, uh, which I do. I mean, it's understandable, but I do think it's 
the wrong question. Like, I think, I mean, obviously it's a very results oriented way of looking at the hand, but I think in general, that's just like not, I mean, the thing you want to be looking to do is like make the most plus EV play, not like, you know, figure out when your hand isn't good and, and find a way to fold it. I'm probably making too much of a title, but for what it's worth, um, that, that way of phrasing things always uh, kind of gets my hackles up <laughs> a little bit when I'm uh, coaching or, or reading these hands or whatever. So in this example, we are at the 1,000-2,000 level of a $5 tournament on Poker Stars. The action folds to the hero who is in the low deck, say uh, three seats off the button, and the hero opens to 44.50 with pocket jacks, jack of diamonds, jack of spades, and the big blind calls. So the hero is the effective stack, starting the hand with uh, a little over 60 big blinds. And we go to the flop with about 12,000 in the pot, 11,700 in the pot, and about 120,000 in the hero stack. So effective uh, stack-to-pot ratio is about 10 when we see the flop. <clears throat> the hero is holding jack of diamonds, jack of spades, and the flop is ace of spades, jack of clubs, seven of clubs. Uh, big blind checks right away. You know, what, what do you recommend here to the hero? I mean, is, is this a spot where you're just kind of, you know, just if I mean, he doesn't give us any read on the player, so just assuming this is a five dollar tournament, many of your opponents are going to be on the you know weak side. Are you just already throwing balance to the wind and saying, like, you know, I flopped the set, there's an ace on the board, I'm just gonna bet big? Yes, <clears throat> um, I'm gonna bet somewhere in the neighborhood of. 90 to 95% of the pot here. Uh, the main the main thing I'm looking at is the hands that I expect an unknown player who I expect to be passive is going to call me with. I think all those hands, like that range is going to be um, uh, static. I think that's the right word <laughs> in the sense that. Or inelastic. You know, Inelastic, yeah. If they have ace deuce off, these people aren't going to fold just because I bet big. In fact, I could probably get away with a small overbet here, but I don't like to push them too far. And so I'll go a bet size under pot, and I almost feel like they would treat a bet size of around like 90% of the pot not much different than like a bet of two-thirds to pot with any ace, any flush draw, um, and I'll, <laughs> any straight draw. Uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll stop there because this is poker stars. If this was ignition, I would say <laughs> any jack, any gut shot, and probably any seven. Um, so our correspondent, Sean, says, after flopping the set, I considered checking behind, but that felt bad as I wouldn't have any idea where I was. Uh, I decided to bet, but wasn't sure on sizing. I like bigger, as that means I can range him more accurately if he continues. When he makes the call, I can put him more or less on an ace or a flush draw. I don't think he'd slow play a set of sevens due to the flush draw, and with the overcards out there and size in my bet, he'd probably think he could get some action from me if he raised. Um, so I think he's kind of coming to around the same conclusion that you are, but I, um, which is good. I don't like the framing of 
you know, that it's like, it seems like his central concern here is like being able to range the villain accurately, kind of like figure out what the villain has. And I think the way you're orienting it, Carlos, is better, which is to think about what you're trying to give value from, right? I mean, you don't, at, at the moment that he checks the flop, you don't really have much information about what he has. He's probably just checking his whole range to you. Um, but some parts of his range are a lot more important than others. Right? We're mostly concerned about the times that he has an ace. To some degree, the times that he has a flush draw, but we're not that big of a favorite against a flush draw, um, especially because many of his flush draws will also have additional outs. Um, so we're really making most of our money in this situation from the times that he has an ace. If he has neither of those things, there's a pretty good chance he's just folding no matter what we bet. And as you're pointing out, you know, if he has an ace, he's probably calling almost regardless of what we bet, or as long as we don't bet so much that we sort of um, shake him out of the, his, his top pair stupor so yeah i mean i think that's more the way you want to like rather than you know i want to choose a bet size that enables me to figure out what he has i think what you really want to do is focus on the part of his range that's most important the concept that i've called value targeting in the past um at least in in a situation like this where you have a value hand and then figure out how to play optimally against that part of his range and when you're playing exploitatively that just means making an assumption about how you think he's going to play it so if this were a better player you might think about you know choosing a bet size that makes him indifferent to continuing with an ace or something like that. Um, against a weaker player, you're more just saying, you know, I just want to bet the maximum that I believe he'll call with an ace. If he doesn't have an ace, then he doesn't have an ace, and there was nothing you could do about that. Yeah. Uh, a simple way I look at these spots is if I am if I think I'm up against a weaker player, I'm going to think about more of my hand versus... I want to say their range, but really in this case, I'll I'll say their continuing range, mm-hmm. and continuing range versus the big bet because that's a given. I'm not going to try to bet smaller to maybe induce a raise or to have them continue with the weaker parts of their range. Like you said, the ace is the thing that we're targeting, and the rest of his range be down. Yeah, I think too too often people think about the action they want their opponent to take rather than the hands that they're targeting. So you know, people will say, well, I didn't want him to fold, so I bet small, or I wanted a call, so I bet small. And I think it's better to say, you know, I want a call from an ace, and <laughs> I want to get, or rather, I want to get as much money into the pot as I can against an ace. That's really the goal, right? The goal is not, I mean, the best way to get a call would be to bet the minimum, but that doesn't do a very good job of <laughs> making the pot larger, right? I mean, g- getting a call is really just one step along the way towards the ultimate goal of making the pot larger. And so making the pot larger is like a balancing act between the size of your bet and the um, the range of your opponent's calls. Uh, so I, I think you know in this case, when, the more exploitatively you're playing, the more you do just want to focus on you know what are the hands he's going to call with and how much is he going to call with those hands. Right. Um, so our hero here bets eight thousand into a pot of about twelve thousand, and the big blind calls. Uh, we've already got the hero's uh, correspondence read on that, which is basically ours as well. That the player probably has either an ace or a flush draw. Some other draws I could have as well, but Ace or Flush Draw are most likely. And we go to the turn, which is the King of Hearts. So the board now is Ace of Spades, Jack of Clubs, Seven of Clubs, King of Hearts, and our hero is holding Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Heart. Oh, sorry, Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Spades for a set. Um, there's about twenty-eight thousand in the pot. And 116,000 in the hero's stack. So now stack to power ratio four or so on the turn. Um, so 
27,700 in the pot. The big blind checks again. Um, I, I know you probably would have bet a little bit larger than our hero did on the flop. Are you still thinking the same thing on the turn? Just sort of assume that he's not folding an ace and bet close to the pot. I mean, we would take two pot size bets roughly to get stacks in at this point. If that, if that were our goal, if we want to just get stacks in, that would mean two pot size bets. Right. And that's, that's what I would do. I would go big again. And I'm even more confident now that he called he called a big bet on the flop so that strength is the range he comes to the turn with and yeah um he's got a strong range i got a strong hand and i want value so i'm just gonna bet the biggest size i think he will call so again like you said a round pot now what about i mean we acknowledged he might be calling with gut shots on the flop so you know we're now losing to queen 10 that's true um, but it's a gambling game, and sometimes <laughs> I'm going to lose. But uh, there's infinitely more combos of ace-x when he defends from the big blind than queen-10, and I'm not going to play against a worse player than myself in this from this defensive posture. Like, you know, how do I protect myself? The, you know, I don't, I'm not going to throw a percentage out there, but I know it's small. The small percentage of the time that I'm beat here, how do I protect myself? Is I'll, I'll refer you back to the uh, quote that I made when we were um, in the house in Vegas this past summer. A lion does not worry about how to protect himself from a gazelle. <laughs> so you got to think predatory in these spots like you can't think about balance you think can't think about protecting yourself yourself you know we want this guy stacked and the only way and he kind of wants to give it to us <laughs> but the only way we can get it is if we ask for it and we got to bet big here to ask for it yeah, you know, I, it's it's understandable. I think that people. I mean, obviously, I was being kind of facetious right. when I asked that question, or like, I mean, that's that's not how I'm encouraging anyone to think about this. But, um, you know, I do understand the perspective of people don't they don't like losing big pots. They have kind of a loss aversion to that. And one of the ways, one of the things that was helpful to me. Um, in being sort of a, a person who's nitty in my regular life to like not be nitty in poker is that you want to have as much loss aversion towards money you didn't win as towards money that you lose. <laughs> right. So, yes. I mean, yeah, there's the fear of like, oh, you know, is there a way I can avoid getting stacked by, by Queen 10 here? I mean, that's an understandable concern, but you have to recognize that there's a cost associated with that as well. And ultimately, it affects your survival in the tournament. I mean, if, if your opponent would have gone to the felt with like, a seven or something and you didn't get that you didn't get all that money right you lost you know if, if you check now and then you just call a small bet on the river and you ended up leaving a hundred thousand chips on the table like you lost a hundred thousand chips <laughs> as surely as if you got them in with a set versus a straight you know you lost a hundred thousand chips and that's a hundred thousand chips that you don't have later in a situation where you know maybe you do get bad beat or you end up on a cooler or something like you know you lose a big pot later that hundred thousand chips is a question of whether or not you continue to survive in the tournament you know, we often set this up as like a, a survival versus accumulation debate. You know, should I be worried about maintaining my tournament life or should I be worried about winning chips? Winning chips is how you maintain your tournament life. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can reduce the likelihood that you get eliminated on this hand, but all you're doing is just kicking the bucket. You know, then you get eliminated 10 hands from now because you didn't win those 100,000 chips. You know, like you've got to win all the chips to win a poker tournament. And I mean, there are some 
rare situations where it is correct to, to be kind of risk averse, but you know, most people take it too far when they're thinking in those terms. Yeah. Another good way to not lose your tournament life is to not play. That way you don't. <laughs> that way you don't have a tournament life to to lose, and I kind of love the analogy of professional fighting. Like if you think back to, um, I mean, I don't remember what year what year this was, but a couple of years ago, um, uh, Liv B, uh, Olivier Bousquet, is that how you say his last name? Yeah. Yeah. So he had a UFC style cage fight. And I'm sure he didn't want to get punched in the face. And if he was worried about getting punched in the face, then he should have never got in there. But if you're going to get in there and you don't want to get punched in the face, you got to do the punching. And so this is me making this bet and risking my tournament life is the same thing as Liv B getting in the cage and Throwing a punch and risking getting counterpunched, but it's better than not throwing the punch and, you know, entering the cage and losing in some other fashion. Like Andrew said, is if you're just, you know, delaying the inevitable. If you if you never throw a punch, you're either going to like, you know, lose to a kick, <laughs> you know, a bunch <laughs> of kicks or something, or you're going to lose to like, you know, just effective aggression i'm sure most people don't know what that means if they're not big fight fans but you can't, you can't sign up for a fight and win by blocking every punch <laughs> even if the guy never lands a punch because you block everything you're still gonna lose you know it's just like death by decision as opposed to getting knocked out and that's almost as bad as um you know going for a shot and getting counter punch and so if you don't want to get hit don't fight. And if you don't want to lose your tournament life when you have a hand this strong, don't play poker. Yeah, I tend to say the same thing when people say like, um, I, I don't want to take a flip or, you know, that that kind of thing. I'm like, well, that's something to think about before you enter a poker tournament. Like, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of flipping in poker tournaments. Yes, yes. Um, okay. So in this case, our hero does actually bet again. Uh, the big blind checks. Our hero bets twenty thousand into a pot of twenty-seven seven, um, which might seem like it's pretty close to pot, but the truth is there's a pretty big difference here between betting twenty versus twenty-five in terms of how much money you're ultimately going to win. Uh, I mean, you should kind of bet the amount that you think maximizes, you know, that that balancing problem between how often you get called versus how big the bets are when you get called. But you do want to be rigorous about this because the truth is if you only bet 20,000, not only are you missing out on 5,000 chips immediately, like assuming the villain would have called 5,000 more, you're missing out on 5,000 chips immediately. But then it's also a compounding problem because it means your river bet is going to be smaller right now that the pot is smaller. If you make a similarly sized fraction of the pot on the river, like because you didn't put those extra 10,000 tips right between your 5,000 and villains 5,000 that's 10,000 tips that didn't go into the pot and that means you're going to end up betting maybe 8,000 less than you would have on the river so now you've missed out on winning 13,000 chips not just 5,000 chips you know growing the pot is really a big deal when you have um, strong hands and even small bet sizing mistakes on early streets can compound and lead to um, to you, know, you winning a lot less money and I think a lot of times people just sort of bet convenient amount like I'm just noticing here that the, the hero's bet size is very 
very round number, like 20,000. Right. Uh, and I mean, 25,000 is a round number too, if you want to be uh, OCD <laughs> about it. But yeah, I mean, I think just people are like, oh, I don't know, half pot seems about right. You know, like I think that kind of sloppiness in bet sizing is, is a bigger deal than people realize. Like it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Oh, well, as long as I bet, like what difference does it make really? It can make a pretty big difference. Yeah, and you know what? That's what your opponents are thinking. It's like, eh, it's a bet. <laughs> and they don't care if it's 20000 or 25000 So when you have a hand this big, get the most you can get. It's like like you're going to lose when the guy has you, have you, has you beat anyway. So you might as well get more from the times that you have him beat. Um, and that way, um, the balance will come out in your favor in the long run. Because in this situation... I feel strongly that there's way more hands that you beat than hands that beat you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the villain does call, and Sean says, the king on the turn helps queen 10, but I can't see villain calling that bet on the flop with queen 10 unless they were both clubs, which would obviously be never folding. I bet again, he flats again. I think his range remains the same, more or less, but the turn barrel being called limits him to the ace with the flush draw, or queen 10. Uh, queen 10 is less likely as I'd expect to raise on the turn most times to charge my potential flush draw. Uh, I expect villain to have ace queen, ace 10, ace nine of clubs. He could also, of course, have ace seven for two pair, but I'd expect a raise to protect on the flop if not the turn. Uh, there is, of course, the consideration he can have ace king, but I can't see him flatting pre and then not raising flop or turn. Players in these tournaments are normally happy to play for stacks pre flop um, with lots of action before them with ace king. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, it sounds like what Sean is saying is that he thinks the villain, he's a little unclear on this, but it sounds like he thinks the villain would actually fold if he had an ace without a flush draw, um, which I don't think is correct. But more importantly, if you believe this is true, if you believe that your villain would fold if he had, say, you know, ace 10 without two clubs, then you made a bet sizing mistake on the turn. <laughs> like, you should be betting an right. amount that you believe will be called by ace 10 of diamonds. I mean, I think Sean did that. If, you know, as we've discussed, I think if anything, he should have bet larger than he did. But he shouldn't be betting and then saying, like, oh crap, he called my bet. He probably doesn't have ace 10 anymore. Like, ace 10 is the hand you're trying to get called by. Yes. And also, if that if the if it's true that this opponent will fold those hands and worse aces, then we started this whole analysis from the wrong point of view because we're assuming that this player is not that great because he's in a five dollar tournament and you know there wasn't a note that said okay this is a a thinking regular and so if that's the case then you have to start this whole thing over and approach it from a GTO point of view which um, we didn't do, and I think we were correct in not doing that. So on PokerStars, I think you might have some players who are capable of folding like ace-deuce-off, no draw. But on a lot of of the U.S. sites, they're calling twice here, uh, if not three times. So I don't think we... um, I don't think that we lose much value from an ace um, with the um, line we've taken so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I also agree with Sean that a lot of the stronger hands, whether that be Queen Ten or Ace King, Ace Jack, you know, I think those are um, a good deal less likely as a result of the villain not having raised at any point. I mean, we could say the same thing for Aces and Kings. Ace Seven, I think, is actually a little less likely to raise. Um, there is quite a lot that A7 is losing to at this point. I think it would be 
not even necessarily a mistake on the villain's part to think, you know, maybe a seven is not quite good enough to raise. Um, so yeah, I, I would not be shocked to see a seven. I would be, I mean, people like to slow play also. So like, I wouldn't be shocked to see queen 10, even though he's just calling, um, you know, the, the flush draw on the board does not mean that he has to raise with, with queen 10. I mean, I, there are good reasons for him to, but I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I do think it's unlikely that we're going to see ace, Jack, ace, King bigger sets, but you know, regardless, I think we would still want to continue to target the like ace 10 portion of his range, which is by far his most likely holding. Right. Uh, River is the Ace of Diamonds. So there is now 67,700 in the pot, and the hero has 94,000 in his stack. So stack-to-pie ratio is something like 1.5, which is why I would have liked to use slightly larger sizing on earlier streets so that we don't end up in this awkward spot on the river with like a 1.5x SPR. I think we'd prefer to have more like a pot size bet in the stacks. Um, On various, on most rivers, really, queens and tens, I would consider the worst rivers. But most rivers, I think we're going to want to get the stacks in, and we'd rather have a slightly lower SPR that would enable us to do that more easily. Um, our hero is still holding pocket jacks, and the final board is ace of spades, jack of clubs, seven of clubs, king of hearts, ace of diamonds. So our hero has jacks full of aces, and now the villain bet. So the villain has called preflop, checked and called the flop, checked and called the turn, and now when the ace pairs on the river, the villain just open shoves for 1.5x pot, and um, the question is, you know, should the hero fold? Is, is this one of those spots where even though up until this point we've been assuming like, oh yeah, Jax is basically the nuts, Jax is basically the nuts, you know, the fact that this guy is shoving the river, I mean, should we just assume that he always has a seven here? What we should assume is that he's not bluffing. And, but that does not mean we can fold because that we should fold because he could definitely be value betting hands worse than ours. Like we, we didn't think he would have um, pocket sevens in play this way, but you know, with the big bets we're making, maybe he does decide to just, you know, I don't want. I guess pot control is the right word. It's either pot control or slow playing. But <laughs> if they choose, if they choose not to get it in with a set of sevens here, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people I play against will just do this with trip aces, even if they don't have like the best kicker. So there's a good chance he's doing this with a worse hand than yours, and also it's a situation where we don't need to be. Um, good 100% of the time when we make this call here on the river and so I'm never folding here um, and um, yeah sometimes you're going to lose but you know I'm sure um, Olivier got punched maybe <laughs> once in that fight maybe maybe not um, <laughs> but at least once you know I think I saw a little blood on him like you know <laughs> Maybe we get bloody here, but it doesn't mean that, you know, this is not a call. I, I like the way you reframed my question. You know, it's um, he, he's not bluffing. I think that's the... I think that's so important that the, the reason to call here, if you call, and I'm actually a little less convinced um, whether or not to, to call here, but if you call, the reason to call would be because you believe the villain could be doing this with worse for value. I do not I do not ever expect to see this as a bluff. Right? The hero has shown nothing but strength. There's a board that's very favorable to the preflop raiser. Like the villain has no reason in the world to think that 
that a, you know, a bluff here would be successful. There's heaps of hands the hero can have that are just like snap calls. Um, so you know, this is a spot that I think most people are going to under bluff. I also think just as a rule, this from from like a hand reading perspective, this uh, pattern of passive, 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 suddenly aggressive. Hmm. That's something that should be very worrisome, right? You, I mean, that's you should always be kind of looking for information as as our correspondent has been doing. You should always be trying to you know ask yourself what can I extract from my opponent's actions and, and choices? You know, what are those things telling me? You should always be asking that question, but some actions are more meaningful than others. And when the villain, when there's a shift in tempo like this, where he's been passive and then suddenly he decides to be aggressive, um, you have to ask yourself what that means. And usually what it means is that he's, the nature of his hand just changed, right? So, you know, essentially that ace on the river helped him in some way. That's that's what this means. Um, you know, how did it help him? Did, is, is he going to assume that any trips is a good enough hand to to value bet or is he only going to do this with a full house in which case you know if the ace made him a full house you're probably losing here right i think it's more likely that he's going to have uh aces full than that he's going to have seven like i think much more likely he has aces full than sevens full um so i actually would not consider it wildly unreasonable like i'm not accustomed to playing with people who are going to treat ace 10 as the nuts in this situation and just open shove the river because they made trips um i agree you know if you think your opponent will do that it is a call um i actually think there is a reasonable case for yeah. holding down the river there's also the um possibility that he was slow playing with queen 10 and now he's jamming to get max value from your trips uh that's something else that's possible um and what's the so he's betting like what size is this 1.5 x pot so what is this uh we be um, like 37% equity. Am I doing that right? But so we need to win this around 37.5% of the time. Yeah, that's the answer. That that that's the that's the crux of the decision here, and it's hard to determine this um just on the podcast. But you want to do some combinatorics to see if this guy has if you if you expect him to be jamming here with a worse hand uh um 37 and a half percent of the time or more then it's a call and if you really are confident that he's not jamming at least that often then we can find a fold here but it's not is not something that I'm going to make a habit of uh, folding boats when I can put some hands worse than boats in my opponent's range. And, and more importantly, remove some hands better than my boat from their range, given the line they took to get to this point. Uh, fun trivia. The reason this show is, is called the Nick Cast is because on an early episode, um, we were advocating for folding a full house on the river. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely do it, just not with the way this hand went down. If that river is, well, I guess it's not a full house. If um, Never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, if that river is like the deuce of clubs and the guy jam, then I'm folding my set. But um yeah it it takes um uh, it takes more 
post-flop action than this to get me off of a um, off of a boat. Now, would you have shoved if the villain had checked the river? I would definitely have bet, and fairly big. Um, I think I run into the same issue that you mentioned, which is because we size the bets kind of small getting to the river. Um, the river um, shove will be an over jam, which I generally try to avoid because um, it makes non-thinking players start thinking. And so had I uh, sized the bets bigger, I would definitely get my stack in on the river. As play, I'm probably going at least pot. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I do think also people tend to, I mean, not just over bets, but also all in in particular does tend to kind of wake people up a little bit. Um, I remember Dara Carney saying to me, the like European stereotype of American recreational players is mm-hmm. that they call too often for non-all in bets and fold too often to all in bets. <laughs> yeah, that that's accurate. <laughs> uh, so results here are... The uh, villain did, in fact, have ace-king, uh, ace-king of clubs. So he was just, like, nutted every way from Sunday. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it's surprising that he didn't through that pre-flop. That's what we would expect to see from ace-king suited. Uh, you know, this does kind of get to my point about some actions being more meaningful than others from a hand-reading perspective. Um, I generally think, like, bigger decisions contain more information. So, you know, pre-flop, the choice of calling versus three-betting with only a few thousand chips on the line, that's going to be less meaningful than a river decision for 100,000 chips. That's going to, you know, if I have to choose, if there's tension between the two, where I'm like, well, on the one hand, he called pre-flop, and that kind of suggests he doesn't have a strong hand, but then he bet 100,000 chips on the river, and that suggests he does have a strong hand. Like, I'm going to read more into the 100,000 chip bet than the 2,000 chip call. That That's a great point. Great point. Uh, do you have time to do one more of these? We can try to keep it a little shorter. Um, yes, but before we do, I got one that'll <laughs> oh, be kind of quick okay. as well. Yeah, I'm I'm curious uh, to get your take on this one. I'm curious to so, hear. Okay. So we are playing a tournament on Ignition. Um, an unknown player um, opens from early position utg1 we are at a eight-handed table and action folds around to us in the big blind with jack nine suited and we are 30 bigs deep and the opener is 40 bigs deep and they open for a min raise um i expect this to be like a um non-controversial call yeah, I would never do anything other than call. All right, so we make the call here. Um, the flop, so there's 26.50 in the middle. The flop is nine, I mean, queen, six, five with two hearts, um, the queen and the six of hearts. Um, the five is a spade. We have jack nine of hearts, so we flop a flush draw. Um, any reason to lead here? No. No. Yeah, so we check, and our opponent bets a thousand into twenty six fifty. And so the flop again was queen six five, giving us a flush draw. Right. Um, I 
think I would call rather than raise unless I had a read that the villain is C-betting too often. Um, I mean, this is the board that people will tend to see vet too often and under defend to see vet. So, I mean, it wouldn't take a lot to convince me to raise, but um, I think my default would be to, to call. I think among other things, when you call, you preserve the value of your pair outs, meaning I'm going to feel reasonably good about it if I call and catch a jack or a nine. Um, right. Whereas if I check raise and hit a jack or a nine, like by check raising, I make it much more likely the villain has a queen if he continues to my check raise. Or if he folds, it doesn't really matter what my cards are. So I'm mostly thinking about how well will my hand play if he calls. And if he calls, I'm thinking he's going to have a queen or better. That's going to be a big part of his calling range, in which case, you know, there's much less value in hitting a jack or a nine. So I think just, just calling, I preserve the possibility to hit a jack or a nine. I could also pick up a straight draw, and I, so I might still choose to play aggressively on the turn. Um, in which case I'd be representing either that I slow played something on the flop or that I improved my hand on the turn. Um, so you know, I'm not necessarily giving up on playing this hand aggressively. Uh, I mean, I'll also probably bluff the river if he checks behind the turn. Um, but I think your aggression doesn't have to come on the flop. And this is not really a spot where you should have a real high check raising frequency unless you have you know, exploitative reason for doing so. All right. I agree with all that. Okay. So we call and, um, the ace of diamonds rolls off so now we still have our flush draw um but we did not improve on this card um we checked to the villain and now they bet around uh 3500 into a pot of 4600 and the action's on us yeah, I mean, this is the downside to just calling the flop is that it does set you up. Like, if you do face a large river bet, um, or sorry, not a large turn bet, it can get kind of, you know, like, I don't like just check calling big bets with Jack High. Um, it also doesn't strike me as a great spot to raise, you know, the R the equity of our draw has gone down um, now that there's only one card to come. Like, not improving on the turn means that our draw is worth uh, less <laughs> than it was worth on, on the flop because now there's only one chance to hit our out. So, you know, I, I'm not as excited about raising. Also, the fact that the villain is barreling again is, um, you know, showing a lot more strength than just the flop bet was showing. Uh, I'm pretty sure solvers don't ever fold in, in these spots. Um they will, you know, there are some rivers that they're going to bluff after they check and call the turn. Um, I have a hard time finding those those river bluffs, <laughs> and I do sometimes end up folding in this spot, but I never feel good about it. I'm, yeah. I'm curious to hear what you're doing here, because I really don't have a good answer for you. I think I'll fold here. Um, the guy's repping a lot of strength. This card is much better for him than us, and... I don't think we have the right price to call just to try to hit our flush. Um, and if we do hit our flush, I don't know if we have good implied odds because everybody can see the three hearts out there. It's like, that's what he's worried about. Like maybe he's got ace king and he's betting big because he doesn't want to get sucked out on. So we can't expect implied odds. And uh, we would kind of be in the same boat as the villain in the previous hand, right? Where, you know, we yes. check and call the flop, we check and call the turn. And then like a very obvious, like our, there's a very obvious way our hand might've improved on the river. And this is the liability of being out of position is like when you do actually have the big hand, you're forced to either check, which does kind of conceal the strength of your hand, but also risks your opponent just 
just checking behind, or you have to make that change in tempo where now you're betting even though you've been passive and that raises a big red flag. There's really no good way around that conundrum. It's just why it sucks to check call with Jack High on the turn. <laughs> right, right. So I would follow here as well. Now, I have a second question for you. What do you do if you're in this spot with like Queen Jack? Does <laughs> <laughs> um, it remind me again what exactly the turn card was? Ace, Ace of Diamonds. Yeah, I mean, against a lot of people, I just fold. Um, even though it is kind of an obvious scare card, I just think it's like you were saying. Even if people will bluff it, like part of the reason why it's a, why it's scary is because they can legitimately easily have it. Um, and even <laughs> if people will bluff it, like they're not necessarily over bluffing it. Like they're also betting often when they have it. So I mean, one thing that I would look for is a read that the villain. Um, doesn't make thin value bets or, you know, we'll, we'll want to pot control if he actually turns an ace. So like there, there is a type of player who barrels when he doesn't have the ace and checks when he does because he's, you know, wants to pot control or, you know, he wants to do the like bet check bet line. I mean, there are people who are transparent with their play in these situations, but my default is to say, you know, m- these small stakes players are overly passive. They don't bluff enough. And I have a pure bluff catcher here. So, you know, I, I don't, especially not since, you know, I might still face, even if he is bluffing, I might still face a river bet and, you know, not know what to do in that situation. So this is another, like, I don't think solvers fold here because, you know, they're assuming an opponent who does make good bluffing decisions. Um, and I'm assuming an opponent who does not make good bluffing decisions. Right, right. I agree with that. So, in game, we do call the turn. And the river is a jack of diamonds. So, we miss our flush draw, but we pick up a pair. We check. The final board, queen, six, five, ace, jack with a missed flush draw. Yes. We check, and we have roughly a pot size bet behind, a little less than that. And villain puts us in, and I'm pretty sure the river's just like a obvious fold. But the yeah, reason I, I think the interesting question is, what if you had Queen Jack? Yeah. So that is a good question. Uh, I kind of would be tempted to even fold Queen Jack. Yeah, I mean, it's another, like, it, it is just a buff catcher. Um, you, I mean, I, I, I think it's unlikely that he's value betting worse. Like, that's the critical question. If you think he's going to shove there with Ace-King, which uh, a solver might, um, but I don't think a lot of human players do. Even if they are going to value bet it, they often won't do it for a shove. You know, a lot of people are kind of blatant with their value bet sizing, where they, they use a smaller size when their value bet feels thinner to them, and they're more confident in their hand when they're shoving. Um, you know, technically, you have some decent blockers through your blocking sets, you're blocking two pairs, but you know, blockers are mostly tiebreakers. And if we think that this isn't really that close of a decision and people just massively under bluff, then yeah, it's still a fold. And it's not really that relevant that you just made two pairs because you're still not beating any of what uh, a like more passive player is going to have. Right. What do you what do you do on the turn with ace five or ace six where you turn two pair? Um, I guess call. I think I think that the 
there's like there's two possibilities, right? I mean, either the villain has an ace himself or he's bluffing. If he's bluffing, calling is almost certainly the right play. I mean, he might be semi-bluffing with hand that's not going to fire again on the river, but that's a bit of an edge case. Like, I don't know that this hand is really... I mean, it is strong enough to get all in on the turn, but I wouldn't be that excited about it if the villain is continuing to the check raise. Um, I mean, I think he is kind of like aware that he's representing an ace. He may or may not call a check raise with it. Although, I mean, I guess if I'm thinking about him folding an ace to a check raise, maybe I should be raising the jack nine. Um, I, mean, I do think a lot comes down to, you know, how likely do we think it is that he's bluffing, which... Yeah, I don't think it's, it's super likely, as I've argued before. And then what's the best way to get value if he does have an ace? Like, I think a lot of people who aren't going to bet the river with an ace also might not pay off a check raise with an ace. So, you know, the the one of the arguments in favor of check calling is that you might not be missing out on that much value anyway, because if the villain is going to value bet any ace on the river anyway, then, you know, calling the turn you still get that value from an ace and the villains who aren't going to value better river uh an ace on the river very well may fold to the check raise also so i think like it is the better play against the weaker portion of his range and it's probably not the better play against the stronger portion of his range but i don't think it's massively worse against the stronger portion of his range okay that makes sense and um i agree with everything you said here Oh, and we block uh, his aces. That's an important. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So, yeah, that makes sense. So, if we have two pair on this turn, we call uh, a set. We probably raise uh, either flop or turn. So, we do get to this river with some two pairs, and um, we can call with those, especially given that we block some of the um, hands that our opponents have us beat mm-hmm. that has that have us beat but i would say most people in um small stakes games probably don't think along those lines like if they have two pair on the turn i think a lot of them would raise at that spot and so uh if they're not capable of not raising in those spots then they get to this river with like one pair the vast majority of the time. And we've already established that pretty much every one pair hand has to fold on this riverbed. And so this is actually a hand that I played where I was villain. And there was a player that I was up against and I put us in his shoes to kind of like show how difficult this is to deal with. And I, and I was bluffing in this spot, but you have the ability to like not raise two pairs in the, on the turn and your your call your river range is kind of protected um but for the people that don't they're just sitting ducks versus this <laughs> and if if that's the case then um yeah this this is one of my favorite plays to do to people and because i know th- this was something where and this is a lesson i like to, to uh, teach students Figure out the things that people do to you in poker that you don't like, and then start doing that to other people. And that's basically like how the opposite I, of the golden rule: do it to others when you don't want others doing it to you. Exactly, exactly. That's how I, you know, learned this triple barrel bluff, bluff play because there was so many times I would defend the big blind white like I'm supposed to, and a guy would just like 
barrel down like this and I, I just couldn't call with anything. And, you know, well, the two pairs, obviously, or if we happen to have, well, we even mentioned the Queen Jack. Even the Queen Jack really doesn't want to call. So unless you have a two pair that you specifically just call with on the turn, you're kind of screwed on this river. And I, I love doing this to people because I remember all the times they did it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, this will plug the uh, exploiting small stakes tournaments one more time. Uh, this is a concept that you talk about a fair bit there, even as early as preflop. You know, you're talking about there were some some spots where you surprised me with how wide you wanted to open, and it was in part because you were counting on being able to do this sort of thing. So you know, there is further discussion of this idea of you know triple barreling people off of hands if they are kind of face up in terms of you know never never uh, slow playing in, in certain kinds of spots. Like you can see how Carlos is applying this in his game and how it's influencing his play as early as preflop. It's not just about what I do in turns and rivers. It's affecting your preflop ranges knowing that you're going to have opportunities to to do stuff like this. Exactly. In fact, I never mentioned my hand, but it's, it's definitely not a GTO approved hand. So I mentioned <laughs> UTG1. I had 10-7 suited here. Not Especially not that, <laughs> not that uh, stack size. Right, right. And so if you you cannot open these sort of hands, and which is why they're not on the GTO charts, you can't open these sort of hands if your opponents are playing well. But if they kind of like paint themselves into a corner, like this guy, like most people I would expect, would um, not have strong enough bluff catchers by the time they get to this river. And it puts them in a position where we make this river pot size jam and it needs to work about half the time. And they maybe have 10, 15 percent of the range that they can call with there. Mm-hmm. So that so that river bet definitely prints. And Andrew and I both agree that we would just follow the turn, um, you know, basically saving a little bit of money here. But the person who I was up against here called the turn with that flush draw. And, you know, once that missed, his rank, if he's calling with all his flush draws and his one pair of hands and maybe Queen Jack that he can't call off with, he gets to the river with a lot of hands that have to fold when that flush draw breaks. And, yeah, you um, pick up um, um, exploiting small stakes tournaments. And these are the type of things that uh, you can hear me teach. And once again, that is available at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. If you are a subscriber to the Thinking Poker uh, newsletter, make sure that you check your inbox before you purchase. Uh, There'll be a discount code in there for you. If you are not a subscriber, you can sign up at thinkingpoker.net slash newsletter. And uh, if you're clever and you poke around a little bit on the sign up page after you sign up, even though you will have missed the email where I give away the uh, coupon code, if you poke around a little bit on that sign up page, you might be able to find a way to see the email and the coupon code. So uh, do a little investigating and you can save a bit of money (laughs) when you pick up uh, Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments at www.nitcast.com. Carlos, thanks for well, I mean, first off, thanks for the for the coaching, and uh, thanks for for coming on now for some extra coaching. 
And, and thank you, Andrew. And before we leave, let me just give a heartfelt thank you to you and also my buddies um, at Tournament Poker Edge and um, Assassinato, Alice Fitzgerald. Um, because you guys have been like such good friends to me in poker. I, f- I kind of feel like this is like a milestone moment for me as a poker player. Because <laughs> I remember years ago when I was just getting started with um, poker and listening to your podcast, interacting with people on the blog, and I was playing small stakes, I was struggling. And there were people that was basically, I remember at one point, they were kind of like giving you shit for encouraging me to keep playing when I clearly <laughs> couldn't hack it. <laughs> and to go from that to to a point where now I can actually teach this game and, you know, a very, very, you know, special thank you to the people I mentioned um, for bringing me on for a product where I can teach it and to have like, you know, some ownership equity and and something is like it's big for me because that's that's not something that like when I first got into poker, it wasn't a game that I played with my family growing up. It wasn't something I did for fun. It was a way out of poverty, poverty for me. And like this is a big step towards that being a, a, a part owner for poker products. So um, I, I have a lot of um, I, I have to thank you guys a lot for that because um, you've definitely um, changed my life, all of you guys. So thank you. Well, you, you are truly welcome for that. And I mean that in, in the most literal sense, which is that um, mm-hmm. I, mean, I was saying to Emily, it's um, so I mean, you're, you're getting a, a, a much bigger cut of this product than than I am. And I'm putting at least as much effort, if not more, into, into, <laughs> yes. into some of the things that, um, that I'm doing for myself. And, and the truth is, like, I... Uh, I, I literally am like as happy to see a dollar go to you as to go to me. Um, and that's partly because I like you and partly because I know that you spend money very well, right? Like that, that you're, you're not extravagant in, in your own living. And, you know, I've, I've seen what you've done times that you did have excess, you know, when you were at a point where you're like, Oh, I have more money than I really need to live off of right now. Like you know, I've seen you giving money to your, your mother and your grandmother and uh, various charities. And just like, I know that you are not wasting money at all. So like, a, I, I, I like you, and I like seeing you succeed and, and get things. And B, I know that you're not um, that like the the money just gets spent well when it goes through Carlos. So I'm I'm very happy to see money flowing in that direction, and I hope that uh, people will, will open the floodgates. Okay, speaking of floodgates, <laughs> um, <laughs> this is something that I haven't told anybody. And I was kind of waiting to, like, say this on the podcast. I never even, like, tweeted it. And (laughs) it's kind of difficult to say because, um, you know, I feel emotional (laughs) right now just from talking about, you know, how much you guys have done to help me. And this is going to sound so bad, but I don't care. It's the truth. It is what it is. I'm emotional because of what you guys have done for me and what I'm able to do for people that love me. So, for example, um, 
my ex who is um having who's recovering from the surgery like being able to like not have to go somewhere and work and stay here and take care of her and buy all the like things that she needs to help her out along the way that is um that's big for me but the other thing is this now it's what what's the date? It's October now. So 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 June. <laughs> I thought you didn't know what day it was. You don't know what yeah. month it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Date month. I'm trying to think back to Father's Get Father's Day. Because the day before Father's Day, my father died. And I'm not emotional about that about that at all because I didn't know the guy. I knew his name, I knew what he looked like. I barely knew him and he did pretty much nothing for me my entire life. But when he died, he didn't have insurance and they couldn't bury him. And I was able to pay for his funeral because of what you guys have done for me. And so I mainly did that more so for my brothers because we all were, what's it called, Mexican. And that responsibility kind of falls on you as the next again. And I know they're not in the financial position I'm in um, because of poker. And so I kind of did that to kind of take that burden off of them. You know, I I basically view him as, you know, any other stranger because that's what he that was he was to me. But the ability to do that grown-up thing (laughs) pay for somebody's funeral who couldn't bother to he I, i remember a story once that my mom told me where he quit a job he had when she um basically tried to put him on child support and it was like he'd rather not work than take care of his kids and at the end of his life, I was there to, like, you know, take care of him. So I'm not sad at all about I'm not personally sad about his death. I feel sorry for him the same way I would feel sorry for any other stranger. Um, and also. Can't remember the exact date on this now, but not too long later. His mom died, who he lived with this entire time. In fact, she was one of the two. I guess everybody's got two grandmas. So, or is it? <laughs> yeah. So you, you you alluded to me like giving my grandmother's money, and the one that you guys saw the video of that was my maternal grandmother. Uh, but I also was able to um, help out my paternal grandmother, um, and. Um, Unfortunately, because he was always there making things difficult for everybody because he never really he he moved. <laughs> I think he, he obviously he grew up with her. He was her son and he grew up and married my mom and lived with her for however long they were together. Year, two years, I don't even know. And then he moved back in with his mother where he stayed for the entire like uh 50, late 50, I think maybe 57, 58 years of his life. So he never really moved out on his own. And because he was always there asking for $2 and, you know, starting fights and getting drunk, you know, I didn't get a chance to go over there and and get to know her that much. And when he passed, I was kind of looking forward like, okay, you know, 
this Thanksgiving, I can go over there and um, spend some time with her. But by this point, she'd already developed Alzheimer's, so she wouldn't know me anyway. And then, you know, she passes before Thanksgiving. And she's smarter than him, so she had life insurance, so I didn't have to, like, you know, spend more money for her funeral. But, you know, I just wanted to say this on the podcast because the podcast means a lot to me. And, you know, um, my brothers thank the listeners and all my coaches over the years for teaching me enough to where I could pay the money for it because they ain't got it like that. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. Uh, I I think that could not better illustrate my point about uh, being happy to see money flow to you because knowing that it's continuing to flow out into other, uh, other good places. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again and uh, encourage people www.nitcast.com uh, and if you really want to see things flowing to Carlos, uh, there is also a, a previous product that Carlos and I made together uh, about playing single table satellites um, although I don't know how many of those are going on with the current <laughs> COVID situation but uh, that is that is awesome I and mean, there's a lot of stuff available in the, the Nitcast store but the uh, current product we've been talking about is exploiting small stakes tournaments and that is about six hours of video um, of Carlos and me. I mean you'll get some insights from me also but the the overall structure of it is carlos coaching me on how to exploit small stakes tournaments yes thank you very much sir uh enjoy the rest of your evening thank you all right talk to you next time okay bye Devotion of a car